Welcome to another ABI podcast of a conversation with a respected figure in the insolvency world regarding topics of interest to insolvency professionals. I'm Felicia Turner, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today we are conducting the fourth in a series of podcast conversations with presidents of various organizations of prominence in the insolvency community. For this July installment, I am speaking with Arthur Perkins. He is the current president of the Turnaround Management Association, better known as the TMA. Arthur is the co-head of Deloitte Financial Advisory Services Turnaround Consulting and Restructuring Practice for the West Region. He has been practicing in the turnaround and restructuring profession for over 25 years, working primarily for debtors, lenders, and others in out-of-court and in-court operational and financial restructurings. Thank you for joining me today, Arthur. I'm glad to be here. During the first calendar quarter of 2008, business filings totaled 8,713 cases, which represented a 38.7% increase over that same quarter in 2007. Further, this represented a 9.1% increase over the immediately preceding quarter. Thus, business filings are on the rise, it seems, and we appear to be in the middle of a much-discussed credit crunch and economic downturn. Thus, this is an appropriate time for the American Bankruptcy Institute to be talking to someone such as you, a prominent turnaround specialist. First, let's just turn to the Turnaround Management Association itself. Can you tell us a little bit about its mission, its membership, and its structure? Certainly. TMA's mission is to serve as a forum for corporate renewal professionals from all disciplines to promote high standards of practice, to foster professional development, and enhance the image of TMA members. I think TMA is unique uh, in that I think we're the only organization that really attracts members from all disciplines, including uh, interim managers, attorneys, financial consultants, restructuring consultants, lenders, investment bankers, liquidators and appraisers, and, uh, and others that serve in the turnaround business. And TMA was established in 1988 and currently has over 8,100 members in 43 chapters, including 31 chapters in North America and 12 overseas, and we're continuing to grow. Uh, This year, we had uh, a pan-European conference in Paris this past April, and we're planning a second pan-European conference in Amsterdam next spring, as well as conferences in other parts of the globe. Great. That sounds like you'll have a lot of exciting things going on and and lots of growth, and much like the ABI has the interdisciplinary side of it as well. Now, I understand you're coming up upon the TMA's 20th anniversary of its founding. Do you all have any special plans to celebrate this great achievement? We do. Uh, TMA will celebrate its 20th anniversary in style at our 2008 annual convention, which is being held October 27th through the 29th in New Orleans. Uh, The location has meeting, as New Orleans is currently in a turnaround itself, and uh, TMA is planning a volunteer uh, community service project for its members in New Orleans on Monday, October 27th. Oh, wow, that's exciting. That's a great way to celebrate, and 
I know I've been to one of your annual meetings before in my former life as a speaker, and, and they always have great programs, very well attended. TMA was in New Orleans right after Katrina. TMA put on a number of programs on the turnaround process for local business people, lenders, and others. Uh, the programs are either complimentary or we charged a nominal fee. These programs were called TMA Assist and were meant to be helpful to the greater New Orleans business community to aid in its turnaround after the hurricane. So you see there's, there's a, a connection with uh, New Orleans and TMA. Right, that's very admirable that TMA is giving back in that way. Do you, you're a volunteer just like all of the ABI members are volunteers and I'm, you have a regular job 40 hours a week, probably more like 80 hours a week. Can you tell us what your duties are as TMA president and, and how much time that takes and that sort of thing? Oh, sure. Uh, as you can imagine, the president's duties are manifold and include governance, guidance, and high-level operations issues, as well as being one of two main spokespersons for TMA. Uh, I lead the uh, TMA's executive and operations committees, uh, which provide guidance to TMA's professional staff, and uh, we also seek guidance from the board. And we are very fortunate at TMA to have a very talented and dedicated professional staff that, that really uh, directs the day-to-day -day operations of TMA. And uh, together with that staff and, and other organs, we, I revisit our strategic plan and uh, help in setting in motion the structure to oversee and implement uh, the strategic plans. Uh, and I spend approximately 20% of my time on this. And since I can't uh, you know, really reduce the amount of time I contribute to work, I just sleep less. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of our volunteer leaders in the ABI will identify with that statement. Now, something that everyone's talking about in the insolvency world these days is the current credit crunch. Can you provide your insight into that credit crunch and the resulting economic downturn? Oh, certainly. Um, I really think that the liquidity glut of the last few years made the credit crunch inevitable. You know, the, the liquidity what resulted in lending behaviors that may have been irrational and certainly deviated from historic norms. Uh, the liquidity glut put downward pressure on rates, and that resulted in four key impacts that exacerbated the credit crisis. Uh, first, uh, the risk premium portion of rates shrank to historic lows. Um, also, in, the, in, in seeking yields, lenders made covenant light and covenant-less loans. Uh, they also made loans with toggle pick and cash payment option terms, uh, you know, which allowed, uh, which event avoided uh, defaults, uh, even payment defaults. If the company couldn't pay, it could pay in kind, or if it had a cash payment option loan, it could take the option not to pay and still not, not uh, uh, violate a payment covenant. And since the covenants were covenant light or covenant less, they weren't violating any uh, technical covenants either. Uh, and then lastly, there was a proliferation of junior debt. So there was more and more money out there, and this allowed many companies uh, that were operating in an unsustainable fashion 
the ability to obtain financing for a second, third, and even uh, lower tranches of debt at relatively cheap rates and terms. And uh, so I think the credit crunch was inevitable uh, when this House of Cards um, was uh, finally came down. What prompted the current credit crunch, and how has it impacted the availability of credit? Well, I think the you know the subprime lending crisis just happened to be the trigger of of a uh, credit crunch that was inevitable, and uh, the the uh, subprime lending crisis and the housing downturn in housing values has contributed to the worsening of this crisis. We are currently seeing uh, the credit pendulum swinging in the other direction with risk premiums and um, increasing and stronger covenants are back. And uh, it's also exacerbated by many lenders having liquidity issues due to the subprime uh, auction rate and other losses that they have to book, which impact their capital requirements and uh, ability to lend. As a professional, you're out there every day in the middle of this. Are there any other factors do you see that are contributing to this economic downturn? Besides the subprime mortgage crisis, credit crisis, and decline in home values, we are seeing ever-growing oil prices now as much as $145 a barrel, which is affecting airlines, auto manufacturers, transportation of all kinds, and many other sectors of the economy. High food prices are impacting the economy as well, with higher corn prices affecting other parts of agriculture that rely on corn for feed. Uh, the other factor that uh, is contributing to the economic downturn is the declining value of the dollar. It is also impacting the cost of imports, including raw materials other than oil, uh, and it is also contributing to the margin squeeze on businesses as well as rising prices overall. We pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. As Congress continues working on the housing assistance package this week, leading up to a House vote on Wednesday on the legislation, a number of other bills affecting bankruptcy and insolvency law have received action recently in both chambers. The House passed the National Guard and Reservist Debt Relief Act of 2008 last month, and the bill will be considered by the Senate Judiciary Committee. H.R. 4044 would exempt military reservists called to active duty and certain others from application of the means test in Chapter 7. The legislation exempts Guard members and reservists who have served at least 90 days on active duty from the means test established by BAPSIPA. Last week, the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Commercial Administrative Law approved three pieces of legislation that would prohibit mandatory arbitration provisions in consumer contracts. The bills, which could wipe out arbitration provisions in hundreds of millions of consumer contracts for everything from credit card agreements to cell phone service contracts to health insurance policies, will now go to the full committee for consideration. Finally, the President last Tuesday signed a bill into law designating the U.S. Bankruptcy Courthouse located at 271 Cadman Plaza East in Brooklyn, New York, as the Conrad B. Duberstein U.S. Bankruptcy Courthouse. The bill was introduced by Representative Adolphus Towns in honor of former ABI Director 
the late Chief Judge Conrad B. Duberstein. This has been John Harkin of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. You've been in the industry for over 25 years, so you've seen other crises as they've come and gone. What do you see as the major difference in debtor-creditor resolution process this time around? I do believe the process of resolving debtor issues has changed this time around. Uh, changed dramatically, actually. We will see more sales and liquidations and likely more debt for equity and debt for debt exchanges and prepackaged Chapter 11 plans. The reasons for these changes are primarily twofold. One, the 2005 amendments to the bankruptcy law allow less flexibility in Chapter 11, providing the debtor with a shorter exclusivity period within which to file a plan and actually hurting the debtor's liquidity through requiring utility deposits, increasing reclamation claims and related administrative claims, and reducing the amount of time to assume or reject real estate leases, and so forth. Uh, In addition, and uh, number two, in addition, and perhaps more importantly in many cases, the liquidity glut, as I mentioned, spawned a whole new junior lien credit market. Uh, Many companies were able to leverage to the hilt with junior lead secured debt which now has left them without unpledged assets or much equity in pledged assets to obtain post-petition financing, so they have no liquidity runway to implement their turnaround. Uh, One other factor causing this trend is the high cost of Chapter 11. Companies in prolonged Chapter 11 proceedings pay a high price in terms of professional fees to navigate the process to a successful conclusion, And as you know, there can be indirect impacts as well, such as potential loss of customer support in a a long Chapter 11. Accordingly, this time around, we expect to see more distressed companies lining up stocking horse bidders pre-filing and filing only to execute a sale through Section 363 or through a pre-negotiated plan. Uh, On the other hand, if a debtor has a strong business uh, but too much debt and can't seem to get the value through a sale, we may see more debt for equity and debt for debt exchanges uh, also executed through a pre-negotiated or prepackaged Chapter 11 plans uh, if, if they can't be done out of court. And then, of course, if things progress too late in the uh, downward cycle, we will see more liquidation. But the bottom line is there will be fewer traditional reorganizations that Chapter 11 was originally designed to encourage or permit. How do you think the stakeholders are going to react to this, and and how is the process going to work in the current environment? I expect to see involvement by lenders, bondholders, shareholders, and vendors much earlier in the process if the more independent boards do not initiate the process themselves. Uh, Lenders and bondholders may have to jawbone if they have covenant light or covenant less loans, particularly those with toggle pick or payment option terms. Uh, In the event of covenant defaults, we will definitely see more active and aggressive lenders. On the company side, if uh, quick progress is not made uh, in the turnaround, particularly in cases where the company is significantly over leveraged, I expect to see the stakeholders push to put in place Uh, you know, a sale process, which will be preceded by some quick operational fixes 
and uh, identifying further upside potential fixes, thereby dressing the company up for hopefully a, a higher value sale. Again, in many of these cases, the sales will be executed through a Chapter 11 filing, followed by a quick Section 363 sale. If sufficient value cannot be obtained from a sale, then again, uh, we will likely see the stakeholders push for a debt for equity and debt for debt exchange to be executed through a, a pre-negotiated or pre-packaged plan in many cases where it can't be done uh, out of court. Most operational fixes will be done post-sale or post-confirmation in the case of a debt for equity and debt for debt exchanges. And what kinds of buyers do you think would be stepping up in this current cycle? I believe we will see more strategic buyers during the downturn, particularly those with strong balance sheets who have easier access to financing. Financial buyers are having more difficulty obtaining financing to the extent and at prices and terms that they find attractive in this current credit cycle. Strategic buyers, on the other hand, will find it easier to reduce costs by eliminating redundancies and back office functions and operations. Uh, thereby making the uh, acquisition uh, potentially more lucrative and, and uh, increase their value. Of course, some financial buyers may also be strategic buyers, depending upon the nature of their portfolio companies, so we may see those uh, playing in this space as well. Okay. Well, let's bring it back to TMA. How do you think this trend in this current environment is going to impact the membership as far as opportunities to participate in this fallout of distressed companies during this downturn? I expect that the turnaround professionals will, will be brought in in uh, several different points uh, in, in the, uh, depending upon uh, when the debtor uh, is prompted to, to look into this. They'll either be brought in early on to assist in uh, assessing strategic options, fix operations, fix capital structures, and plug gaps in management, uh, at least in the interim until a new management is found. Uh, in other instances, turnaround professionals will be brought in to identify the fixes, implement the quick fixes, dress up the company, and sell it when it's determined that uh, that's the only feasible option. Uh, they, uh, they may also be brought in to find refinancing or prepare for a debt for equity or a debt for debt exchange. And finally, there will be opportunities for post-transaction uh, operational and uh, improvement, merger integration, and so forth uh, for professionals. And then there may also be opportunities in liquidation in the case of uh, debtors that let things go too late. So I do see a great deal of opportunities out there for all disciplines represented in the turnaround space. Okay. Well, do you have any last words of advice or comfort for the ABI and TMA constituencies? I expect to see fewer mega cases that run for several years. Of course, with the impact of oil prices on some of our largest corporate businesses, such as airlines and auto manufacturers, who knows what will transpire. Bottom line, I do see plenty of work coming in all size cases. But as we see cases of shorter duration, we will all have to make it pre-filing, post-transaction, or on volume or success fees. So I think there's a lot of work out there, and we'll all be very busy. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Arthur. I've enjoyed talking with you. I'm sure our members will enjoy this podcast. It's informative and insightful. My pleasure. 
To our members, please look for our next podcast in this series soon. We hope to do future podcasts with the presidents of the National Association of Chapter 13 Trustees, National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys, and the Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Advisors. And please visit abiworld.org to listen to past podcasts with the presidents of the National Association of Bankruptcy Trustees, the National Conference of Bankruptcy Judges, and the International Association of Restructuring, Insolvency, and Bankruptcy Professionals. From the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Felicia Turner. Thank you for listening.